Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome back to our lesson on Esther. This is our second podcast in the series of this lesser-known Old Testament book. To review, this is a true story of a young Jewish woman named Esther who, along with her uncle Mordecai, around 479 BC, will save the Jewish people from almost certain death. We know from the Bible that while some Jews have returned to Jerusalem after being held captive by the Babylonians for about 70 years, as many as 80,000 Jews have remained behind and they live in and around Susa, S-U-S-A, which is one of the capital cities of the Persian Empire, which is modern-day Iraq. In fact, for centuries, there will be a greater number of Jews in Babylon than in the Holy Land. Our story takes place about a hundred years after the formal Babylonian captivity ended. The area is ruled by the Assyrians, and the Jews that are here are well-established, and they have jobs and families, and honestly, no ties to the Holy Land. And so, for the most part, they have found a way to peacefully coexist with the Assyrians. While this is the only story in the Bible that doesn't explicitly mention the name of God, therefore it's been the center of a lot of controversy about why it's even included in our Bibles. We're discovering this is an amazing story that is in fact filled with God's presence among his people. The story of Esther demonstrates there are no coincidences and God's divine presence is with us and he uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. The story of Esther is a brilliant story of God's activity in our lives, even when we don't recognize it as such. Esther has become the queen to King Xerxes after he banished his first queen, Vashti. She refused to parade herself in front of his drunken guests. Many historians believe Vashti may have actually been pregnant at the time and therefore more reluctant to be seen in public. Regardless, King Xerxes made a public decree all beautiful virgins in the land needed to be brought to him so that after one year's beauty treatments, he could choose a new queen. Esther is chosen. She's Jewish, but she's kept her Jewish identity secret. And we also learn that she's endeared herself to everyone she meets and therefore is chosen by Xerxes to be his new queen. Esther's an orphan. And even while serving as queen in the castle, she remains in close contact with Uncle Mordecai, who raised her. We learned in our last podcast, Mordecai has already found out about a plot to kill the king, and 
Esther brought this information to the king's attention, and the guard's attempt to kill him was foiled. We were then introduced to a really bad guy. Feel free to boo whenever I mention his name. Haman. Haman has been elevated to a very high position, although we're not exactly sure what he had done to deserve this. But everyone he encounters needs to bow down to him. We learn that Mordecai, being a Jew, refuses to pay homage to Haman. Haman's incensed, and once he finds out Mordecai is a Jew, he plots to kill not just Mordecai, but to eliminate all the Jews. And Haman convinces King Xerxes that the Jews are potentially disloyal to the crown because they, quote, don't obey the king's laws, unquote, and should be eliminated to avoid any potential problems down the road since they keep to themselves and therefore can't really be trusted. The date for the Jews' death has been decided by Haman when he cast lots called pure, P-U-R. Remember that word, pure. It's going to have significance later in our story. A decree has been issued by King Xerxes that approximately one year from now, all Jews will be killed. Recall that a decree issued by the king cannot be changed, regardless of how ill-advised it is. Also remember, the king does not know his beautiful Queen Esther is a Jew herself. Now, this decree to annihilate the Jews isn't a secret. It's advertised throughout the land. It was to be a national affair, and everyone in the land was expected to participate. The message was clear. Every Jew must die. Furthermore, the Persians could pillage the victims' homes and steal their possessions. So, no doubt, there's going to be some Persian men and women who are circling this date on their calendar. We left off our story with Esther using one of her eunuchs as a messenger between herself and her uncle Mordecai. Uncle Mordecai has placed himself outside of the castle gates. And if you can visualize this, he's covered in sackcloth and sitting in ashes and making quite a spectacle of himself. In fact, Esther's really concerned about maybe Uncle Mordecai has lost his marbles. So she sends this eunuch out to find out what is up with Uncle Mordecai. Mordecai then, through the eunuch, explains to Esther the dire situation she and all the Jews are in. And Uncle Mordecai reminds Esther she very well may have been made queen for a situation such as this. Esther, through the eunuch, tells her uncle that while it is true, yes, I'm queen, but King Xerxes runs a very tight ship. And in fact, it's a well-known truth that if you go to see the king without being summoned, and he does not extend to you the gold scepter, you will be put to death. So 
Let's now open up our Bibles to continue with Esther. We're looking at Esther chapter 4, verse 15 through 16. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish." Unquote. I wanted to better understand the significance of Esther and Mordecai's fasting. So I went to a Messianic Jewish website called First Fruits of Zion. And this is what it said, and I'm going to quote. In Judaism, fasting is closely linked to repentance. By fasting, our carnal and animalistic impulses are forced to relinquish control. It compels us to accept that what we fight against is not external. The true enemy is spiritual and the battlefield is our heart. And then they quote from Paul in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, unquote. And then it continues. A true warrior must be trained. Skill in battle comes only with regular exercise and practice. In the days of Mordecai and Esther, they fasted in order to seek victory in battle against their enemies. Fasting prior to battle? It seems like the opposite of good advice. Weakening our bodies seems like a surefire way to give our enemies an advantage over us. That is unless we are misidentifying the true enemy. There are occasionally physical beings such as Haman, whose mouths spew threats and who point weapons in our direction. Don't be fooled. They are merely a decoy." Unquote. Do you see how Esther and Mordecai's faith is at work here? They wanted to prepare themselves for battle, the battle of darkness, not of the flesh. So Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people fast for three days. And what do you think happened next? That's in Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her, and he held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? 
What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared, unquote. What is this young woman up to? Do you understand what just happened? First, Esther risked her life by appearing unannounced before the king. Thankfully, Esther was given permission to speak. But then, surprise! She didn't tell the king that she was a Jew. It seems that instead of rushing to issue her request directly, she wisely chose to invite the king and Haman, our bad guy, to a banquet. Hmm, interesting tactic. So at the banquet, the king imbibes heavily, which we know from earlier in our story, he is prone to do. And he again asks the queen, what is your petition? And he again repeats, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. Now let's pause for a moment. Do you know where else in the Bible this type of boastful promise is made by a king? It's in the New Testament. When Salome dances for King Herod on his birthday and he boasts to her, I will give you anything you want, up to half my kingdom. And this time, Esther's clever. And she says, I want you both to come back tomorrow night for another banquet. And then I will tell you my request. Haman, our bad guy, goes to his home in high spirits, literally and figuratively, boasting of the fact he's the only guest that has been invited back to the palace for another banquet the next night. But he adds that, gosh, this gives him no satisfaction because that Jew Mordecai is still alive. Let's revisit the story. It's in Esther chapter 5, verse 9 through 14. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. 
then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. End quote. Wow. Now, the fact that Haman's wife suggests that he kill Mordecai on a pike before he goes to enjoy himself at a banquet, that kind of leads me to believe she's not such a peach herself, right? Isn't this story just filled with twists and turns? We're about to get to a pivotal point in this story in chapter 6. Listen to this. Chapter 6. Verses 1 through 9. That night, the king couldn't sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman's in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Unquote. <laughs> Who said the Bible is not filled with humor and irony? Isn't this just great? Haman, being so full of himself, can't imagine the king would be referring to anyone other than himself. God is so present in this story. Can you see it? The king can't sleep, so he asks for a nice relaxing bedtime story, which is to read his chronicles that have been recorded. And this is basically a record or a diary of the king's life. If this king were not so vain, he wouldn't find his own life so interesting. But God uses his narcissism to further his purpose because while listening to his own story being told, He's reminded who it was that saved his life. It was Mordecai. So, we have the king wanting to exalt Mordecai. We have Haman wanting to 
impale Mordecai and assuming the king wants to exalt himself, Haman, in his vanity, he has given King Xerxes an idea of how to publicly honor Mordecai by parading him through the streets. This is actually like a Shakespearean comedy, isn't it? At this point, the reader knows far more than any of the characters. Both the king and Haman are being played by Queen Esther, and yet she doesn't even know the full extent of what is unfolding. Let's look at Esther chapter 6, verses 10 through 14. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get that robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested. For Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. And he told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Unquote. Wow! What a huge piece of humble pie for Haman to have to parade around the city his enemy, Mordecai. Isn't it interesting that Mordecai saving the king's life basically went unnoticed for a pretty long time. Although his good deed had been recorded in the history books, it wasn't remembered by the king until God's perfect timing. Just as Haman was about to ask the king to order the hanging of Mordecai, the king is about ready to give Mordecai a reward. Although the Bible promises that God will reward us for our good deeds, and that's in the New Testament in Luke, chapter 6, verse 35. But love your enemies, do good to them, and Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High, unquote. Yeah, but still, we sometimes feel impatient waiting for our payoff, don't we? It may seem that no one notices when we do something good. But remember, God's timing is perfect. God is good all the time, and God is present all the time. When events seemed out of control to Esther and Mordecai, when the king dictated ruin for their people, when evil was poised to triumph, God was at work. He worked through their darkest days when Esther was taken into the harem. 
we will see God working through their faithful obedience like Esther, risking her life before the king. And we will see God at work next week when they are going to have victory, when Esther will reveal Haman's plot. And then the Jews will foil this plot for their ultimate destruction. The message is clear. God is sovereign even when life doesn't make sense. This is an important message for all of us to share this week. God is sovereign even when life doesn't make sense. Have a blessed day.